If you've been listening to the Business of Biotech podcast for a while now, you'll recall that Aaron Harris has joined me to co-host a few episodes. Aaron's my friend, colleague, and chief editor over at sellandgene.com, and she just recently launched a podcast of her own. It's aptly named Sell and Gene, the podcast. And if you're working in the Sell and Gene space, you should give it a listen. It's a collection of interviews with the industry and academic leaders moving the space forward. And you can find it at sellandgene.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Sell and Gene, the podcast. Check it out. This is the Business of Biotech. I'm Matt Piller. And on today's show, we're digging in to make sense of yet another somewhat vague and somewhat esoteric industry phrase, flexible manufacturing. So as a communicator in the space, I'm as challenged as the next guy to take complex and multifaceted concepts and package them up into a few concise yet descriptive words. That's why I'm sympathetic to buzzwords despite my disdain for those as nondescript as flexible manufacturing. So here to help me unpack what flexible manufacturing means, what it entails, how it's advanced, and how it's benefiting advanced therapy developers and manufacturers are Sarepta Therapeutics Director of Pharmaceutical Engineering, Brian Winstead and Tony Corey, Project Pharma EVP and longtime friend and contributor to Bioprocess Online. Now, Brian has got a lot of cred on the topic before joining Sarepta uh, a bit more than a year ago. He led capital expansion and engineering projects at a veritable who's who of drug manufacturing companies, including CSL Bearing, DPS, Sandoz, Pfizer, and Wyeth. Today, he's bringing uh, the diversity of those experiences to Sarepta's incredibly deep and diverse pipeline of RNA gene therapy and gene editing candidates for rare disease. For his part, Tony brings a lot to the table as well, having contributed to manufacturing operations and leadership roles at Beringer, Engelheim, Amgen, Sandoz, Gilead, and Avexis, among others, prior to joining Project Pharma about five years ago. And as I just found out in our pre-show banter, Brian and Tony worked together for a while at CSL Bearing back in the day. Um, so Brian, welcome. And Tony, welcome back. Thanks for having us. It's good to be back. <clears throat> Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it's always my pleasure. Now, I didn't mean to start the conversation off on sort of a cynical note when I, you know, th through that whole flexible manufacturing industry buzzword kind of uh, commentary out there. Uh, it just seems that lately I've been doing a lot of these uh, podcast uh, conversations and, and bioprocess online live events about things like, you know, process intensification, flexible manufacturing. Like, yes, the words collectively mean something, but boy, they can mean a lot of things, a lot of different approaches, right? Um, so, and being a simple-minded Pennsylvania boy, as I am, um, I like to start at a definitive level. So let's do that. Uh, Brian, let me start with you. What's what's sort of the definitive explanation of those two words together? So flexible manufacturing, in my mind, um, can, as you say, mean a lot of different things. It is kind of the holy grail uh, for those people out there that want to start up a, a facility. But really, flexible manufacturing to me is the design of facility that allows for multiple products to be 
manufactured within a single space without much modification or change to that space, meaning you can bring a cell therapy type product through in an adhesion type uh, media type situation, or you could bring a suspension material in at another time. And so it, it allows that flexibility, whereas in the past, traditional manufacturing spaces have always been designed for one product. You'll find it in multiple facilities. You'll go in and they'll say this suite was designed for product X. And that's all that it can do because of the limitations of that design. So flexibility to me means just that. It allows you to do multiple products, multiple various processes in the same suite without doing physical changes to the, the suite itself. Okay. I, that, that brings up a couple of follow-up questions that I want to dig into, but not before I give Tony an opportunity to uh, respond and you know either corroborate or add to uh, what you just described, Brian. Yeah, I think Brian hit it, hit it on the head, you know, hit the nail on the head. It, it's a lot, it's a, you know, having the bones and the infrastructure to accommodate different technologies, right? You know, in, in this time, the reason why flexible manufacturing is such a hot topic is we're, we're in a, you know, massive, you know, breakthrough in advanced therapies, right? And with that, we have over 1,300 products in clinical trials, new therapies coming through the pipeline, and the demand for us to be flexible as the product you know, matures through the life cycle is critical. And that's why companies need that flexible capability and uh, single use capability. So that's what's really driving this. And um, having you know, manufacturing solutions that can accommodate different technologies while we you know, mature the product through the product development and analytical development cycle is really what's important. And what and is really a key driver to why we're doing this and, and the importance of it. So, yeah. So, okay. So the follow up is a question that is perhaps impossible to um, kind of crystallize a response to. No, no problems. No, no problems, right, guys? Just, just throw. Sure. It. It's an yeah. impossible question yeah. to answer, but <laughs> ask it anyway. You know, uh, f- flexibility is um, it's it's sort of an arbitrary term, right? Like. There's flexibility that's cheap and easy and to, you know, to some effect. And then there's, you know, hey, we're extremely flexible. In fact, we've got all sorts of flexibility budget, right? Like, uh, so the, the, the impossible question to answer is when you talk about flexible manufacturing, what's reasonable and um, at what point does the concept of flexibility become, you know, <laughs> you know, to, uh, at what point are we, are, you know, would you look at the the process or the system and say, you know what, uh, we're flexible, we're not that flexible, perhaps. I, I'd like to take that if I could to respond to that. So I, I look at that as if you were to take a product across what I call a family line. So for instance, vaccines as a family of products or gene cell therapy is a family of products. But if I have a gene cell therapy facility that I've designed to be flexible for gene cell therapy and you come to me and you say you want to make a tablet over the counter, I would look at you and go, I don't have that kind of flexibility. I can't do that. But I can do anything you want to do in the gene cell therapy world, which is that type of product, providing the size. And then the other piece is the size. So you start out if you're in a, say, product development 
tight level. You want the flexibility to allow you to, as, as Tony mentioned, to expand into the commercial, but yet if you want it to go with multiple products running at the same time through that, that may not be flexible enough to do that. Well done. Well done. I guess it wasn't as difficult a question as I, as I anticipated because you, you, you put that quite, quite eloquently. Tony, anything to add there? No, I, you know, it's the same thing, right? Chemical-based processes, vaccines and diagnostics, medical device, biologics, microbial mammalian, cell therapy, gene therapy, CRISPR gene editing, all of these, you know, family lines, as Brian highlighted, would require uniqueness um, to them. So okay. you know, plasma therapies, things like that. Yeah, maybe that's a good segue. Maybe maybe my simple question is a is a um, good good segue to uh, you know the the conversation around why flexible manufacturing is appealing to or makes sense or particularly well suited to uh, advanced therapy innovators. Um, I don't know, Brian. You wanna you wanna start out with that one or? It's very simple: speed to market. Mm-hmm. So right now. Um, in the, at least in the gene cell therapy world, speed to market is key. I mean, we have people that are in need of these medications and you have people like, for instance, the the Duchenne's muscular dystrophy world, where you have people who need this medication, you know, to, to survive. And the faster you can go to market, the better. The faster you can take something, develop it, move it through the, the, the process, manufacture it, get it approved and commercialize it, the better. So anything that lets you accelerate that is what you're looking for. And that's what these flexible type manufacturing environments provide. I had a, a conversation, just quick follow-up on that. I had a conversation uh, on a, a previous episode, an episode that aired shortly before this one, uh, with Ancho Mongol, who's uh, the CEO at, uh, at Project Pharma, where Tony Corey is, um, and Audrey Greenberg, who's the uh, co-founder of Discovery Labs. And Speed was, uh, you know, the, the conversation was about outsourcing decisions, uh, insourcing versus outsourcing, and then choosing a CDMO. Um, I was very careful not to let Audrey make it a commercial conversation. It was, it was very informative. Um, Also joining us was uh, Sumit Verma from IOVANCE. Anyway, speed came up. Uh, What you just mentioned is is the the simple response to that question, Brian. Um, And we had a discussion around that and I I get that. Uh, But a lot of times we talk about speed and advanced therapies as though uh, boards and budgets, you know, as if we don't need to answer to boards and budgets. Um, There's got to be some some balance there, right? I mean, there's got to be some... uh, and we'll get into this. I want to talk a little, we'll, we'll have a conversation around the sort of the economics of, of, of flexible manufacturing. Um, but, but tell me a little bit about that. How do you, how do you balance uh, speed and um, economic governance? Sure. Uh, that's, that's an interesting question, the way you would, uh, you would bring that. So I, I guess I would say is the, the, the key to that is when you go to your board or otherwise, when you're talking about building a flexible facility, what you're telling them is, is that, hey, I can build it faster, which gets your drug to market, which gets you income revenue from that drug coming in sooner. I mean, the, the key I'm always going to say is we are trying to get to the patients faster. It is not a financial goal. Um, it is it is all about the patient. And I want to make that clear. But one thing that a flexible facility can do as you build it and such a normal 
if we take a normal drug and the normal time frame it takes about five years start to finish, really, if you start to build a facility, you get the drug in, you get it qualified, and you get it commercialized, it takes about five years, and that's that's on a highly based fast track. Now with these flexible facilities with the ability to bring in pods or or prefab, we can change that and, and reduce that down to and, and Tony can test about a 24 to 30 month basis. And um, Tony sees this more in, than, than I have, but but that's that's the speed. So I can go to my board and say, if you give me the funding, I can do this. The other thing is, is that the financial side of it is not in in some cases, it's not as expensive as building a facility of the past when you're stick building it and you're having to do everything that you had to do before. Now I can go into a warehouse. I can put a take that warehouse as long as it's got a large enough gallery with columns in the right spot. I can slide pods in and I haven't had to go and invest in a brand new piece of property, dig up the ground and, and build a facility from the from the from the bottom up. Right. So those things I can offer to my board to get faster approval, which then gets us into the marketplace faster. Cool. Right. Tony, what other uh, what other elements of flexible manufacturing make it particularly appealing to folks in the ATMP space? Yeah, I mean, just building off of what Brian highlighted, I think you know. So I've been I've had, I'm honored and trusted to manage you know probably two to three billion dollars worth of capital in facility builds related to cell gene therapy, scalable, flexible, single-use technology in the last probably four years. And in, in doing that, <clears throat> you get to see a lot. And one thing I'll highlight is about the cost that you brought up, Matt. If you're building a facility with single-use technology, it'll actually be less capital up front to build that facility and shorter timelines. So it's not just a speed item, it's also a capital investment. And then it's like, you know, if, if you were to build a, sing, a stainless steel, big bioreactor, you know, facility that accommodates commercial, you know, need, you're talking about clean in place capability, steam in place capability, and it's a whole different ballgame versus a single use uh, technology that could, you know, have proven, you know, materials of construction for the product contact services that are allowable in that space. So th there is a cost item that is reduced capitalized upfront. Reason being is that remember, you know, therapeutic revolution, tons of products coming in, they're in preclinical or early phase one, two clinical. You know, we do want to invest the right amount of, you know, funding or risk that funding commensurate with the maturity of the product through the, the you know, clinical phases. And so I think that's an important item. Um, other parts is uh, fewer resources, right, to operate the facility. You won't need as many people to run, you know, from a clean in place, steam in place operational perspective smaller footprint. So when using, you know, flexible technology, Brian highlight, you can grab a warehouse, you won't need as big of a footprint because you don't have these other cleaning and uh, decontamination steps uh, that are typically necessary in a non-single-use environment. Um, and then, you know, I guess contamination risk would be my, my last item to just bring up to the team. J just related to, you know, when you're having to qualify cleaning, cleaning cycles and steaming cycles and autoclaving and pyrogenation type initiatives, depyrogenation in this case, you wouldn't need to worry about that with single use technology. Obviously you have to remove the waste in a proper safe manner, complying with, you know, EHNS, you know, type requirements, but the contamination risk would be another factor to, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. Interesting. Um, you talked about scalability real quick there, Tony. Uh, what, so, you know, a, a lot of, uh, ATMP, a lot of cell and gene therapy, uh, developers are obviously clinical stage right now. I think you've mentioned Tony, like 1300 clinical programs yeah. going on right now. Um, so that that's, you know, that's one scale. Uh, what does flexible manufacturing mean for what will hopefully at some point in the not too distant future become a, um, a big opportunity for commercialization of some of these products, right? Like the, the market should expand. We should see, you know, uh, the demand for more scale. Um, does, does single use support that? I'm, I'm sorry. Uh, well, single use being part of flexible manufacturing, does, does flexible manufacturing support that scalability that we all seek? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I, when I think flexible, I mean, I immediately think flexible, scalable, almost in the same breath. I mean, right now companies are, are growing into these facilities, right? And so they'll grab a footprint that's a couple hundred thousand square feet, and then we'll grow into it. So only we'll use part of it in phase one, and then we'll scale up as the product continues to have clinical success and then position it properly to, you know, address the epidemiology of a commercial product, right? And so, you know, having, you know, flexible, scalable technology also allows if, you know, the thought is put up front properly and you consider it properly to mitigate downtime, mm -hmm. right? Because when we do expand the facility, we can pop in some modular solutions um, versus, you know, knocking down all the infrastructure with the stick built potentially and then having to add another module. Um, it really, you know, when we're talking about there's there's pods or walls, you know, different types of solutions like that, and they're single use. When you have a facility, though, it's almost like imagine your clean room becomes a piece of equipment or an asset, even from a financial perspective. If you can take the building, flip it upside down, whatever falls out, you know, is is depreciated financially based on the asset in a different table versus the building depreciation. So now your clean room becomes a piece of equipment, just like your bioreactors, your, your TFF skids, chrome skids, fillers. And so that that's that's the idea around it. It also allows reportability and you know potential opportunities to you know move things around or adjust where needed um, versus stick build, for example. Yeah. yeah. So I would love to invite Brian. Any other thoughts you'd like to add, please? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the other the only things I would add is you know just on what you're saying is that the nice thing about prefab walls and such, if you design it properly, it's is as easy as you pull a few pieces, a couple panels off and you slide it out so many feet and now you've doubled the size of your, your manufacturing space for one of your technologies as you grow. And, and that's one of the things, or you just have it set so that the, the, the interior walls are already there and you just, and just add in the, the other uh, suite as you expand more fab prefab walls and everything's there, the power utilities, and you're just plugging in and it's like plug and play. And, and it's either that or it's pods, as, as Tony mentioned, and you just add two or three more pods, you've got another suite and you just keep adding as you need to expand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tony, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, that, that, that concept or that notion of treating your clean room as a piece of equipment. Well, you can, you can in fact do that today. Can't you, this, this, this concept of uh, prefabricated, Clean rooms is that essentially what uh, what that is? Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, we, we were part of uh, we were honored to be part of the first ever you know now commercially approved gene therapy 
FDA approved manufacturing facility in the US. And um, we treated it just as that. So, you know, the clean room became an asset versus part of the building. Yeah. And, you know, when PricewaterhouseCooper or whatever companies come in to evaluate it from a financial perspective, it's, you know, did you change the foundation? Did you impact? No, we were dropping in literally like Egos pods and then connecting them all. And yeah, those could, you know, in essence, be removed. It would not, it wouldn't be easy to do, but you could remove them just like you would with a filler. There's still, you know, challenges with taking a filler out and relocating it, but you could do it. I'm curious about that, um, that, that pre- concept of a pre-manufactured clean room, you know, you, like you said, kind of drop it in like a, like a Lego. Did you say Ego or like Lego, but I like Egos too. So don't worry, Matt. That's good. You, you drop an Ego in and toast it. I thought <laughs> Lego or Lego. Uh, dropping it in like a Lego and blueberry flavor, clicking it in place. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to dwell here. I don't want to. You know, make this a, a conversation about uh, architecture. But um, you know, there are certain requirements of a clean room. You know, important requirements. Uh, in te- structural integrity and airflow and and on and on. Um, so in in this concept of a of a prefab clean room, how do you go about ensuring that this you know quote unquote piece of equipment that is a clean room meets all of those criteria? So one of the things you do is if it's a pod, for instance, at the pod manufacturers, they will do a full FAT as you would just a piece of equipment, and you do just that. They put it together. You do all the airflows, all the testing, everything's proved out there. Um, they're even doing some advanced um, qualification, even at the, the pod manufacturer site. And then you bring in it and do an abbreviated SAT, and it's already been approved. I mean, the air handlers and everything that you attach, you either use their air, air handlers or you use your own. And if you're if you, you're using your own, the only thing that you have to do there is prove out that the air handlers is the same as what they use for the FAT. It's, it's very basic. It's, it's, it's done all the time now. And so the finishes, the fits, all that are still standard CGMP that, that you would see the floors, walls, ceilings, all the corners, all that's done just like the construction would be if it were stick built. Um, it's, it's all CGMP put together. Right. Yeah. And, and that's, that's perfect, Brian. I mean, I guess, Imagine all the utilities, just to further explain what Brian already highlighted. You have all these utilities for your piece of equipment, right? You know, if you buy a piece of equipment, you need to have proper water supplies, gas supplies, right? You know, compressed air of some sort, whatever those are. That's the infrastructure and bones. With a with a clean room, same thing, right? You have certain utilities like an airflow, an air supply, that's a proper clean room. And then electrical, right? These, these facilities, like when you're buying a pod, you'll have a testing apparatus at the manufacturer that'll have all the same supplies. And they'll say, hey, you need this much PSI coming in, you need to have this type of you know, electrical support and you know, X, Y, and Z. Take that same thing, drop it into a facility, make sure you have the right utility support uh, to achieve that same type of run. So what's kind of neat is one time we did a build, the speed piece that Brian was highlighting, we, we hadn't picked a property yet. We bought pods. We bought all the long lead items, fillers, TFF, chrome, bioreactors. We started to integrate the clean rooms with the equipment. And we didn't even have a site selected. Yeah. And then when we looked at a site selection, we made sure the site was big enough 
and could handle from a supply, you know, you know, loading docks, flows, ceiling heights, et cetera, support structure, all the stuff we already committed, which is probably about $20 million of funding committed. Once we picked the site, we made sure that all the sites, you know, utilities were souped up, if you will, to accommodate our, you know, all the stuff we'd already purchased. That's all happening in parallel. So now you've got a whole facility build and you know, facility utilities being souped up while I'm buying pods and integrating them with long lead equipment. And then eventually you connect them all together. So it was really, it was really uh, neat to do something like that. Definitely kept us up <laughs> a lot, a lot, a lot of late nights of worrying, but uh, it all came together pretty nicely. So yeah. Uh, let, let's compare and contrast a little bit uh, pre, pre-manufactured clean rooms compared to stick built clean rooms. And, you know, I want to compare and contrast and then I want to, you know, talk pro, pros, cons, advantages, disadvantages of each. And we obviously we've talked about some of the advantages of, of pre-manufactured clean rooms. Maybe a good place to start would be, you know, are there circumstances where it just wouldn't make sense and perhaps I'd prefer to go stick? Um, I, I can answer that. So Tony and I worked on a facility where we had that same situation. We tried to decide do pods make sense versus uh, stick built. And we ended up going stick built. And the reason being was the facility had already been chosen. And by the time we got involved looking at the facility, it just didn't accommodate any of the, the prefab, the prefab design which is what Tony's saying is your prefab design works better when you can be working on the facility at the same time you're working on prefab design. This one, the facility had already been picked. We were in a time crunch and it was just easier to go into the space, make the design and then build the walls and put the finishes in. Um, it's, it's just, it's, it's one of those situations where sometimes time and the facility it has to go in limits you on your capability of doing the prefab and making it effective. The other thing to bring up is something that you you mentioned yourself earlier was prefab walls. You have to have a way of getting them in. If someone's bought a facility and they're trying to put this in the center of the facility, aside from maybe cutting open the roof and trying to bring panels in, it just doesn't work. And there again is another situation where you just it's it's easier to go with stick built than it is to to do any kind of prefab or or pod type arrangement. The Business of Biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at CytivaLifeSciences.com backslash Emerging Biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. What are some potential drawbacks, uh, other potential drawbacks around um, the, 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 the prefab clean room? Um, I mean, any other drawbacks or for that matter, any other, uh, you know, pointed drawbacks to uh, stick build approaches? Yeah, I mean, the... I mean, I, we like to look at them in three buckets, right? There's <clears throat> there's stick build, there's this module wall solution, and then there's the pod or podular. There, there really are like three buckets if if you kind of look at it. And um, you know, from a stick build to a pod versus you know just to compare those two and leave the module walls out because those are pretty attractive. I mean, stick build is more cost effective. Um, I also think 
stick build to pod, you can allow for more design changes during a stick build. Mm. There's a pod. With a pod, you got to go back to the manufacturer and modify the pod, right? So it's a, it's a little different from a logistical analysis. Um, you know, from a you know, the pod is more beneficial when it comes to scalability, uh, repurposing uh, where possible, or mobility, uh, timeline, of course. And then, you know, just to throw the wrench in there, module walls can 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 also be cost effective and allow for time design changes. Like Brian said, they can be really attractive for that. Um, they do require uh, a lot of attention up front, similar to stick builds to do the proper design. Mm-hmm. Uh, mobility isn't as attractive as a pod. It depends on that how that ranks. Um, I- I think the other thing that to throw in is customized pieces of equipment can be can make stick build more attractive. So if you have a customized tank or you have something like that that doesn't fit a pod or doesn't fit the modular wall or you have a suite that's built that way and then you want to bring that customized piece of equipment, that's when it becomes a disadvantage versus, you know, if it has to have some special exhaust or or some kind of special utility connection, sometimes that's where, where stick build is better because you you have, like Tony said, that capability of doing different modifications that you wouldn't necessarily have if you wanted, because you'd have to go all the way back to the pod. The pod guys would love you to come back to them because they want to sell you another pod, right? Yeah, we'll take your we'll take your old pod out and we'll give you a new one. <laughs> yeah. Whenever we, all, whenever we have like tall, like, you know, bioreactors, Brian and I always say pop the top and a few other colleagues yeah. like, because they're they're taller, right? And so you need to accommodate the clear, not just the bioreactor, but then the clearance to operate and maintain the bioreactor. And then you have the pod, and then you have to have clearance on top of the pod before you get to the ceiling height. And so when folks are like, "Oh, how how high of a ceiling do you really need?" I'm like, "You need a pretty high ceiling, man. You, when you <laughs> yeah. add it all up, and it, it adds up pretty quick." So yeah, I mean, so inevitably, there you know, maybe not inevitably, but often there may be a requirement for some. Uh, in infrastructure or building change in any event. Um, I don't know. Do we, do we touch on the, the uh, controlled manufacturing environments for fa- fabricated, uh, you know, prefabbed clean rooms? Do we talk about that? Is that an advantage? Like the fact that you're having these things built in a controlled environment that, uh, you know, it comes in as opposed to saying like, all right, we're going to seal, seal these corners off, uh, you know, uh, in, in the facility. Yeah. I mean, um, it, it depends on how you look at it, right? Like <clears throat> if you're doing a stick build, you want to do the first build out, this is the best way to describe it. We, we always, you know, when we're planning out a facility build, we say phase one of the build, it's dirty construction, have at it. Mm-hmm. Phase two is a completely different timeline, cost profile and effort because now you're in change control land. You have GMP um, implications. You have clean room construction, right? So imagine a, a construction worker that used to just walk in and pile of dirt and he's building out a facility. Now that person needs to have gowned up at certain moments and, and, and it's a different level of effort, timeline yeah. um, and documentation. So that's one thing to consider. When you do have a pod solution, you can do that build of the pod or the walls extra, you know, offline. But you'll still, if you're doing phase two or three, you still have to have the documentation part of it. But it might allow for ease um, in that expansion because some of that work is offline. It, it mitigates it down. Yeah, I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, that's 
it's I, I guess I anticipated that, uh, that that might be a consideration. Sounds like that's not as big as a consideration as maybe I thought it might have been. Yeah, not not as much. I mean, it just depends on the phases. Yeah, much consideration factor in there. Good. Well, I want to spend some time talking about um, something that we 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 talked about a little bit earlier, and, and single single use, where where adoption is there, and the advantages and disadvantages. Um, before I move on, though, are we good on uh, on prefab clean rooms versus stick built clean rooms? Yeah, I think so. All right. For now. Cool. Um, so yeah, where is adoption today on, on single use? You know, Tony, you referenced it, uh, when we, when we started the conversation out a little bit. Um, I know that it's, uh, you know, from my perspective, we see more applications of single use. We see more opportunities to adopt single use technologies because they're, you know, new, uh, single use pieces of equipment. Um, what, what does the market look like and where are we as far as acceptance is concerned? Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, market-wise, industry-wise, it's accepted. Um, it's a love-hate relationship, Matt. I yeah. don't have to tell you. It's, it's a love-hate relationship. I mean, it's exciting, right? The single-use industry, I think there's been some literature around it. Brian and I have discussed it just continuing to boom. You know, there's projections out there in 2027. It could be a $33 billion industry. Um, now, why, why single-use? Why use it? Of course, from a timeline perspective and a cost perspective, upfront capital you will spend less capital upfront if you implement single-use technologies, right? It'll just reduce cleaning and steaming operations and procedures and infrastructure and and staffing, all that. At the same time, you know, that's the love part of it. Mm -hmm. The hate part is because it's such an attractive solution, it's becoming a very difficult, you know, material to, you know, supply. Mm -hmm. And there's supply chain bottlenecks going with, you know, that are coupling with that type of solution. So that requires commitments earlier, strategic thinking. Don't over-customize your single-use solutions. I think Brian and I talk about that all the time. Good is good enough. Don't try to make it the perfect you know, custom solution and, and have the single supplier have to make you something customized. Um, in addition, right, single-use technology breaks. It, it, that's just what happens, right? So when you're operating, I think when we rolled out that first facility after, that was first facility ever that now is commercially approved for gene therapy that was a curveball we had to have a whole team handling breakages and non-conformances and kappas that were you know continuously taking place because things break right the single-use environment so um it's a love-hate relationship again i, I kind of come back to that you know brian i'd love for you to you know oh, give yeah. us your thoughts I got, I got plenty of i got plenty of opinions on this one mostly hate so, actually, I mean, it, it, it's not. I mean, from from the ease of use and that it's it's really convenience, right? I mean, it's instead of having to buy a tank with an agitator, you just buy a bag with an agitator. You, you plug it in, it's done. You dispose of it in the proper manner, and and you're done with it. And and you know, tubing sets, all that stuff. It's from a contamination perspective. There's there's a love hate there as well. I mean, the the thing is we we have to have specialized training for uh, operators because they have to understand that the impeller that's inside the bag, when they're taking it out, you've got to be careful to handle it. The impeller doesn't cut the, the bag because if it cuts the bag and you start filling with product and now you have product going all over the floor and you've, you've lost that product or the tubing set, if they don't weld it properly, and they've taken it off the, the rig and they're starting to take it somewhere and the tubing starts to leak. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you have you have all those where you have the 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 capability of product loss as an issue. Um, there's also with the single use technology, sometimes you get defective bags and defective things from the manufacturer. I mean, they do have their own quality, their own checks, but even some of that slips through and, you know, you, you put a million dollars worth of product into a bag and all of a sudden it's leaking. And then you have to understand, okay, what are we going to do with that? We can, we can stop the leak, but now what about the product? The product is, is suspect and Kappa's and investigations and, more quality testing and things to make sure the product is okay from the contamination. You know, we want to make a safe product. We want to make sure all that's good for the patient. And so we have to, to deal with that. So that's kind of the, the, the hate relationship that Tony's talking about it. You know, yeah, um, it's, it's a great, it's great when it works. It's terrible when it doesn't work and there's really a happy medium. <laughs> yeah, I was going to I'm glad you you gave some of those anecdotes around bags and 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 uh and tube welds um because I was going to ask, you know, what Tony mentioned it breaks. Well, what what, you know, what breaks? Are are there other components that perhaps our our audience might be uh, you know, um I mean, it's well served to know could could or, or are likely to break. I would just say, I mean, plastic is plastic, right? I mean, it's, I mean, I know that it's not just a plastic, but anytime you have a plastic component, you have the opportunity for bad welds. You have a, you know, poor injection mold was done with it when it was made at the manufacturer. And you can just have hairline cracks, things that your operators aren't going to see. And they won't know until liquid goes through it that there's a problem. And it's just it's part of the the life of dealing with a with a disposable a piece is is yeah. that. So this may be a completely uh, naive question, but I'm known for asking them. Uh, are there is there any liability assumed by the the manufacturer? Like, can you you know seek some some sort of remuneration should these things happen based on a warranty or? Hmm. I don't is this, know. Is this where I do the lawyer thing and say I'm not a lawyer, so I can't <laughs> can't give advice. It it depends on it. The the manufacturers are good good to work with you. Filters and things like that are certified. You can go back to them. They do want to know when there's issues. They will work with you. Um, I know that Paul's one of our big. I don't want to give a an advertisement. Paul is one of our our big suppliers, and they do work with us when we've we've found issues and. And they have changed some some manufacturing processes to accommodate some of the issues that have been found. So mm-hmm. they typically will. There, it's based on how much they help you versus how much cost and material you've lost. There's there's no comparison, and they're obviously not going to pay you for lost product, but they will work with you if, if it's something that you seem to be having a constant issue with or you find they want to know. So maybe they can make their product better. So for the next company or the next customer, they don't have that issue. Sure. What's your opinion on, um, you know, you, you talk about the love hate relationship and thing when things go wrong, they go real wrong. Uh, wh- what's your overall opinion though, in, in these relatively early days on the, the outcome of single use versus, you know, stainless and, and fixed. Oh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of um single use i mean the the operating expense around cip sip the time that it takes for the the different pieces of equipment tanks and things like that to go through those cycles 
um, you know, that I can, I can run a bag, I can pull it off, I can move it, I can set another bag immediately and start another process run versus I've got to sit there and wait for the tank to go through the, the CIP and then turn around and wait for it to steam and, and sterilize itself. It's, it's worlds above. And you, once your employees or your operators are trained and they understand what they're looking at and they, they know the, the pitfalls, you, you kind of see that, that negative go away. I mean, they, they start to you know pick up on it. They'll know to look for certain things in the handling. So, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, so I, yes, I, I think, uh, single uses way hands above um, um, the regular, just stainless steel in place type equipment. Yep. Okay. Tony, I want to real quick, jump back to something that you referenced earlier um, when, when you were um, talking about some of the um, not, 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 not pitfalls, but considerations around single use technologies. Uh, and, and I invite both, both of you to, to comment on this, but you said uh, you said something about customization. And you alluded alluded to you know maybe um, avoiding it, right? Like trying trying to work with uh, with with uh, with with what you have to work with. Um, where have you seen attempts at single use customization perhaps gone wrong or gone awry? Uh, and and how do you avoid that? Like any any advice on trying to avoid custom single use solutions? Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> Good question, Matt. The um... I mean, seen it a, a lot. I, I guess it comes back down to truly listening to your partners, right? Mm-hmm. When your partner highlights, look, happy to accommodate what you'd like, but it will require us to customize X, Y, and Z. This will take multiple weeks. Da 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 da. You have to hear that what they're trying to tell you is that this is complex and it would take a lot of effort versus using our standard component. And and you see this happen um, at times when you have you know, a mix of folks on the user side trying to make something perfect. And, and again, the, the goal is to make sure it's compliant. Number one, safety and quality is top. That's never negotiable. But when it comes to perfection, it's like, look, if all you got to do is put on a little clamp here and here and you're good with the standard part versus adding an extra inch on each side and customizing it, you should clamp it. And, yeah. and, and the reason being is that allows long lead, you know, it mitigates your risk around the supply pricing of, of the materials. And then, um, you know, from, from a vendor side, it allows them to be able to just mass produce things that you may need. So I really think that they're, it's a trick, right? It's a trick to the trade to be disciplined. And if you are to customize, don't make it a customization for one piece of equipment for one little part, like customize, make it standard, and then look at all the systems. And maybe you have like company X 1.1 single use customization, but I'm going to order so many of from them, you know, it'll apply across the board. So you really got to be thoughtful, map it out. And that it's a trick of the trade, right? I like single use technology. I agree with Brian. Um, when you're doing a commercial scale, you may want to reevaluate it and do some calcs around that and, you know, projections, but, you know, even then it's, it's, it's it takes a lot of thought, you know, you know there's going to be a multiple year evaluation to see if, sing, you know, single use for a stainless steel would work. Yep. environmental impact look there's plenty of environmental impact when you're using you know gallons and gallons of water and chemicals and handling them and disposing of them um and the different uh, steaming operations so the environmental impact to me it's it's definitely comparable or even attractive to single use so it's 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 a whole picture consideration but yeah that's the idea around the customization is is let good be good enough 
and, and don't try to be perfect. At the same time, if you need something because it won't work, of course, you got to make sure it's there. Quality and safety is critical. I would, I would bring one negative to single-use technology that's an artifact of COVID and what's going on right now. And that is there are two or three components in the industry right now that everyone is using in the, in let's say the gene cell therapy market. And it's made it, uh, it's like certain, certain items have now become gold because you just, it's hard to get them. And that's, that's one, one thing if I could caution people is if you are going to buy certain things, you may want to consider qualifying a second vendor so that you have a second source. And unfortunately, some of those items, there is no second source because it's that new in the industry and and that's a drawback. But some of that is related to COVID because the vaccine groups are using the same stuff that we are, so. Yeah, Brian, you know, I was discussing this recently. We had a client, private equity awarded them 100 million bucks, three tranches, right? 37 million, 37 million. And we had presented and got the funding approved, what worked out great, five. They were like, we're going to give you tranche one, then two, then three. And I came back and said, you need to give me tranche one and two today. And they're like, why? And it was specifically related to supply chain and understanding that we need to commit earlier. And and there's long leads, Matt. And what Brian's highlighting is new long leads. So if we just say, oh, filler is a long lead. Well, yes, obviously, if if you have the experience, you'll know that's a long lead. But what you're not realizing is the vials are becoming a, a year long a year plus lead time. Mm-hmm. That's not typical. Or even, you know, some freezers and fridges or different items that are using COVID become six to 12 month lead times. I actually have colleagues now in the space that are being contacted by the government going, hey, we created all these supply chain bottlenecks. Can you sit with us and help us de-bottleneck? We'll, we'll discuss funding strategies to de-bottleneck what we created during COVID. So it's, it's really interesting to see. And you know, getting a supply chain resource onboarded ASAP and then explain to them not just your primary, but secondary and tertiary lead times. I want you to evaluate all three filters. <laughs> no, we would ever look at filters during an early build. You yeah. need to look at them and you need to have a place to put them. So those are all um, really good points, Brian. And, and they definitely, you know, strike a chord with me for sure. Yeah, I was going to comment when Brian brought that up, you know, that potential downside of of, um, of single use being long lead times and supply chain bottlenecks. And he referenced a few things and you referenced that a couple of times, Brian, and I got the sense that maybe Sarepta didn't want anybody else to know what those few things that are hard to get are because it wants to kind of keep them under <laughs> wraps, you know, so it's got control. No, the no, never. No, we would never do that. Uh, no, what are you, uh, you, you hey. Everyone knows. Everyone knows what they are. I can I can call up somebody at one or the other in a Vexus and they would go, Yep, we got that same problem. So I mean yeah. it, it's what it is. Yeah. Um, what are, you know, maybe the, the near-term answers aren't right in front of us, uh, you know, how, how to mitigate those risks, those supply risks. Uh, what do you guys see as some, some long-term solutions to making sure that you avoid getting into the situation that COVID has exacerbated in terms of supply chain and lead times? I mean, I, I think the one thing is if you can find an alternate that can supply you with the same, same, component that's that's always the first thing you try to do because you can qualify them and then you can have you know access to both some on the shelf or both 
so that you can manufacture. Um, the other thing I'm seeing is that the, the companies themselves that are making the components are actually realizing it and they're quickly trying to put in capacity um, to supply um, to, to help the marketplace. But really, aside from changing your process, there isn't much else you can do to mitigate. I mean, like Tony said, you can buy extra and put on the shelf. The only problem is, is certain things have ex expiry with them and you have to be cognizant of what your usage is and that expiry to make sure that you don't end up with a whole bunch of components that are on the shelf that are no longer, you know, usable for you. Sure. And, yeah. yeah. And I mean, just building off, I mean, whenever you have a big supply de demand discrepancy, right, there's going to be ways to fill those holes. So one is existing vendors are going to expand like Brian highlighted, right? having a secondary vendor, and then new companies are going to come to the market, hopefully being pulled from proven companies that then will fill that, that hole. So it's, it, you know, we, we've even seen some new equipment we've been using. Similar instruments, similar equipment, using the lab, you know, totally compliant. We've audited the vendor, new player in this space, and we're like, hey, we'll take that because we know fundamentally it complies with what we need from a process perspective and an analytical perspective. And not many people know about that company because they're newer to the market. So it's, um, you know, many ways to fill that gap. And, and when there's a demand for it, it, it finds its way to get filled. So if you have an existing supplier and they're expanding, good, right? If you have, you know, secondary supplier, like Brian said, great. Thirdly, you definitely have to do a little more legwork up front, but new, new companies coming in to fill that gap, you really need to make sure they know what they're doing um, and aren't just filling the gap. They're from that industry. And if, if so, they can be a great viable option. Yeah. Is there relief in sight? Generally speaking. So I think there's some, but I, the problem is, is that on the gene cell therapy side, there's so many new ones getting online at the same time. It's going to be a little while before a lot of these gaps are filled, even yeah. with COVID going, if we get COVID under control and it goes away. Yeah. Agreed. I mean, you get asked this all the time, especially in private equity. When do you think the imbalance will change? It's like, well, that's a great question. I mean, if we had that answer, we'd be uh, in a different, playing a different game. But uh, I feel like we get relief and then more products come on board. And then we get relief and more products come on board. And not just that, the products are progressing through the clinical trials, which means they're serving more patients. We're making more material. Then they become commercially approved. We're getting more commercially approved advanced medicines requiring more material. So it's this balance of you know how much supply can come online and can it keep up with the increased demand from a product progression standpoint, as well as a new product introduction standpoint. So yeah. it, it's it's this whole mix of uh, factors for sure. Yeah, yeah. M most of which are caused by positive uh, market signals and positive signals for the patients. Exactly. Totally. Um, I, I just looked at the clock and I'm like, holy cow, we, we tried to bite off more than, than we could possibly chew on this, uh, on this episode. I feel like we could talk about single use forever. I've got a lot more questions for you. I've got questions about the environmental impact that you mentioned briefly, Tony. I've got questions about all sorts of stuff, but we're running out of time. Um, so I'm going to give you a, give you guys a couple minutes, just kind of wrap up, give us some parting shots, parting wisdom on, on flexible manufacturing, you know, whether that's prefab this, that, or, or single use this or that, um, parting wisdom specific, obviously to ATMPs, gene and cell sure. therapies. Yeah. I'll kick it off. Right. You want to wrap it up after, um, I think my biggest, uh, piece of advice is 
you know, every time I come to do an assessment, folks come to me and they go, dude, isn't it the same thing for all the same? You come, is, don't we all have the same assessment? And I wish that was the case. If that was the case, I would have written an article, posted it online, said, hey, everybody, take it. Let's save all the patients' lives. But there's so many unique factors, right? Mm-hmm. From the pipeline, the epidemiology, the yields, the scale, the maturity, the science, all these things that have to be reevaluated per company. The second thing related to single use and flexible is keeping a pulse on the latest technologies and best practices. They're changing. Everything is changing so rapidly that I have a team constantly working on this all day, every day, keeping a pulse. We're investing in it reoccurringly. And that the podular designs you see today were not the same in 15 or 16 or 17 up to 21. Neither are the wall solutions, neither are the stick. So equipment technology. So keeping that pulse and understanding that technology is evolving by the minute. I mean, we're actively working with vendors in, in confidence to produce new technology that will address a lot of these challenges. So there's a lot of creation going on and you have to just keep a pulse on that. Mm -hmm. And and that's, that's a constant um, effort. So. Brian, were you one of those, were you you one of those guys telling Tony, come on, aren't these all the same? (laughs) I've always told him that. No, no, I, I, I get, I get what he, what he's dealing with in in the marketplace. And the the only thing I would add to all that is I want to see things get, to that holy grail of flexibility that you were talking to earlier, where we can jump over families. But I really just want to see this acceleration continue. It takes it back in my earlier days in the former world, it took so long to get a drug approved. And, you know, now we're, we're accelerating that with fast track and things and gene cell therapy. We're right at the tip of the iceberg. And I, I feel like it's just going to build on top of itself with the medications and the things we can do for patients. And the faster we can go, the more flexible we can be, the more people we can save. And that's, that's really what attracted me to the gene cell therapy market in the first place is that for once I'm, I'm curing or, or, or stopping a disease from, from continuing so that people can live. And that's, that's the important thing. And so if we can make these manufacturing facilities more flexible and do it faster so that we get them to market faster, that's what we should be doing. Awesome. That's yeah. Perfect. That very, very sound advice. Um, and I appreciate it. I, I appreciate you both for coming on the show, spending some time with me. Thank you for having us, man. This is great. Both doing important work. And sometimes it's uh, it's great. You know, we spend a lot of time talking about obviously the business aspects of biotech on the show as per the name, the business of biotech, but sometimes it's nice to roll up the sleeves and talk a little bit about some of these business impacting functional elements at the engineering and design level. So uh, it's been enlightening for me and educational. And I thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it, man. Always so that's Brian Winstead and Tony Corey. I'm Matt Pillar, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva. Please visit cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech to explore a trove of custom curated content designed to help guide the emerging biopharma's journey. Then go sign up for my newsletter at bioprocessonline.com. And if you like what you heard here today, hit that subscribe button. Give us five stars. And as always, thanks for listening.